Welcome to Legally Empowered. I'm your host, Sahara Pines, and I'm really excited to bring this podcast to you. As an attorney and former business owner myself, I'm passionate about drawing on my own experience and insight to set my female clients up for success. I know my guest today feels the same. I'm so excited to welcome today's guest to the show because she brings such an experienced perspective to our conversation today, as we'll talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly as it relates to workplace culture and other important workplace issues. Ray Mateo Harris is a partner in our Chicago office and a strong advocate for diversity and inclusion in all aspects of her life. She has more than a decade of experience representing employers in workplace litigation, handling labor relations disputes, and providing strategic counsel on labor and employment issues. Gray is a valuable resource to all of our clients seeking to elevate their workplace culture with respect to diversity and inclusion, implicit bias, gender discrimination, and sexual harassment. As someone who believes deeply in the importance of giving back to her community, Gray's list of volunteer efforts is too voluminous to mention on the show, but it's safe to say that this is one impressive woman. Welcome, Gray. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, I am excited to discuss diversity and inclusion issues as well as freedom of speech and really get to talking with you more. Awesome. So you and I did a webinar a few months back. Gosh, so much has changed since then, right? Uh, About so-called free speech at work in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement and as well the insurrection at the Capitol. So what can you share with us about employee free free speech rights at work? That's a great question. And certainly so much has changed, but so much has stayed the same. And, you know, the analysis really hasn't evolved uh, tremendously over the years, but it has resulted in kind of different political influences uh, and different expectations of what the EEOC will do and what a court would do given a particular set of facts. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, political speech and freedom of speech and topics around uh, Black Lives Matter uh, and other such concerns have become quite uh, at the center of attention across the country. The coverage has pretty much uh, elucidated that public opinion uh, is easy to change on issues that perhaps previously were more settled. So uh, the First Amendment certainly applies to government actors when we're talking about public employees and federal contractors. But for the most part, if we're talking about private employees or employees of private companies, they're going to have different rights. And you're looking more at federal and state and local laws that govern either political speech or provide rules around anti-discrimination. So like there's really not a right to free speech per se in a private workplace, right? Correct. Yes. And I think that's pretty jarring to a lot of employees who mm-hmm. I think assume, you know, and lay people generally who just assume that anything they say is freedom of speech and that their employers have to tolerate really any kind of language or conduct or behavior as if they were the government and they're not. And I think a lot of employers are quite hesitant as to how to handle issues and how to act because there is a general perception that there's freedom of speech. Now, depending on the state you're in, again, there might be specific rules that do govern an employee's right, uh, certainly during non-working time 
and during you know spaces that are for private use that are non-working spaces there's going to be a lot of regulation around that uh, in different states so you're going to have you know different rules depending on the space in which it's happening but whether it is something that crosses the line and violates your policies that's generally going to be a place where as an employer you can step in and in fact you should step in to ensure you're enforcing your rules and you're doing so non-discriminatorily across the board. Talking about policies, that's a really good point. So what about a company policy on dress code or office decor? So could a private company prevent an employee from, let's say, hanging a Confederate flag in her office? Yeah, that's obviously a great question and one that seems more complicated than at the end of the day it is. Um, and that is one an answer to which has changed over time. So back, you know, 10 years ago, uh, there would have been a lot more argument that hanging, and in fact, there is case law to that effect, that hanging a Confederate flag in your office could be protected um, and certainly insufficient uh, grounds to discipline or terminate an employee. But fast wow. forward to the present, and given the backdrop of what we have seen, the EEOC has been quite clear and vocal um, and in fact has pursued actions where the only uh, allegation was that there were Confederate flags displayed in the office. So without any additional information, that was considered for the EEOC sufficient. And again, there's case law supporting the position that displaying Confederate flags in the office could possibly be sufficient evidence of racial animus. Now, whether it rises to the level required for a, you know, a claim of discrimination, that's another thing. It might not be sufficiently pervasive or severe to end up uh, in support of a harassment case, but it is enough to make it to the courts. And so it's enough for an employer to be wary of, you know, failing to act if you are seeing Confederate flags in your workplace or if it is an issue that is raised as a complaint, not taking that seriously, would certainly uh, be a possibility of liability on the employer for failing to act. So could a company then have a preemptive policy that says you can't wear political clothing or can't hang political posters in your offices to sort of prevent on the back end potentially having a lawsuit that it's a hostile work environment? Sure, employers can, and many employers have developed policies around, you know, prohibiting political speech um, in terms of displaying Black Lives Matter signs or whatever other kinds of information on an employee's uh, shirt or masks. We saw a lot of cases around that, employees wearing mm -hmm. masks with messages um, during COVID. And here's what I would say to that. Sure, you can have policies to that end, but, and I won't mention the company, but there were some very public and very um, unpleasant uh, backlash that was faced by companies that had such rules and had such neutral dress code policies um, that prohibited anything uh, of that kind. And in the end, it turned into, you know, calls to boycott that company, mm. to cancel the company. And so I think a, a wiser path is to prohibit any offensive, racially insensitive, derogatory, you know, anything that you can do to be clear that you're prohibiting offensive 
um, violent messaging, that kind of language I think is going to put a company in a better position to make wise decisions as to when they're enforcing the policy fully, when they need a little bit of flexibility depending on the content um, and the context. And so you saw you know, companies turning around and handing out Black Lives Matter paraphernalia to their employees, right? Taking the opposite path mm -hmm. um, so that it's more in line with their key demographics and their company uh, messages and what they want to be perceived as. So at the end of the day, I think it's difficult and that's why you want to seek uh, legal counsel and be really careful and strategic about the language in those policies, but doing nothing at all is certainly not desirable either because then yeah. you're leaving decisions to managers that are going to use their own bias, mm -hmm. um, you know, and their own thoughts on what is or is not offensive and, you know, what is or is not allowed. Right. And in, you, you mentioned the enforcement piece of this, but you want to make sure that if you do have a policy, just having the policy in place isn't good enough. It's, it's all about how you say this is offensive versus this is not offensive, or I believe in this politically. So this shirt is okay, but yet another one might not be. Exactly. Okay, so what are some of the best practices for business owners or their HR teams to respond to these social or political expressions? Sure, so I think the most important, you know, best practices are to annually review your policies and procedures and make sure they're up to date. They are in line with whatever state laws and federal laws and local laws exist that apply to your workplace. Um, that they are relevant and intuitive given the particular workplace and what your employees do on a day-to-day -day basis, um, that they're easy to understand for employees depending on your workforce, if it's professional or, or different. Uh, also that it is tailored to the specific business needs and circumstances um, that an employer is anticipating. So you should have a legitimate business reason ready to go for any policy that you have written or implemented. You should not be uh, having to recreate the reason for a policy once you're faced with a lawsuit or once you're faced with a claim. Um, again, you want to make sure that you are disseminating your policies, that you're training employees on the policy and also training your managers and your HR uh, and business people on how to comply with it. Uh, you want to make sure that you're being respectful of protected activities. So mm -hmm. the National Labor Relations Act, of course, there's uh, some activity that might really straddle both uh, political speech and, you know, protective concerted activity. So you want to be careful there. You want to make sure you're being respectful of lawful off-duty conduct if there are off-duty conduct laws in your state. Uh, you want to make sure, again, as we've repeated now several times, that your policies are being enforced consistently to avoid discrimination claims. And then again, uh, kind of mentioning a topic I already alluded to, you want to balance between fair implementation and then zero tolerance, right? Um, so that it makes sense for the way you're running your business and that you're not landing in hot water uh, from a public perception standpoint, depending mm -hmm. on the area you're in. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, lawful off-duty conduct. So mm -hmm. I just wanna clarify that for our listeners. So if an employee takes time off to go march in a protest or something like that, that's what you're referring to when yes. you're saying you cannot prohibit in certain states that employee's activity? Absolutely right. So in certain states, 
you can't consider in making an employment decision one way or another what that employee is doing with their lawful off-duty um, activity and time, right? So an employee, and we saw this a lot with, you know, the Capitol riots and, and mm -hmm. all the coverage there, employees that were just in attendance and, you know, perhaps were not involved in any unlawful activity, were not storming the Capitol, were not entering, um, employees that were not wearing their badges, as famously mm -hmm. reported, uh, or otherwise identifying with a particular company, right? Those individuals would probably be in a hard position to terminate unless, again, you know, you're looking at activity that they could have likely been in support of that would be illegal. Right. Is it actually, quote, lawful off-duty right. conduct when you're talking about yeah. the Capitol insurrection? But that's a whole nother, a whole nother can mm -hmm. of worms, right? It is. Um, I, it is. But even I think in, like peaceful course. protests, right? Yes. Yeah. Think peaceful protests. Think, you know, not throwing um, bottles at police officers. Not, yeah. You, know, you can just put yourself in a position where you're thinking about whether any of the conduct that they engaged in truly does violate your policies. Even if you didn't like the, the message, uh, you didn't like kind of generally the fact that an employee had a may, maybe very public role in a protest, as long as their conduct was peaceful, nonviolent, um, you know, non-discriminatory, not hateful, it's really best not to take any action in such a situation, even if it's raised to you by other employees. So in terms of this off-duty conduct, how does online activity factor in to the, quote, lawful off-duty conduct? So posting on Facebook some racially charged posts or maybe maybe even hate speech or political speech, how, how does that factor into an employer's ability to, to look at that or maybe have an employee raise that speech to their attention and say, hey, look at what my coworker did. I'm not really comfortable working with that person anymore based off of what they posted on their private Facebook page uh, during their off-duty time. Yeah, that's a great question. And that is a thorny one. It's going to depend so much on, the on what it is. Circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yes, what it is, what role that employee has. Is that employee a supervisor? Do they have a heightened duty? To the company, you know, beyond um, their regular uh, loyalty duties, is this is the message itself violent, hateful, or otherwise prohibited um, by or inconsistent even with the company's policies and positions? Because most employees are at will, right? So, in most places, as long as you're not discriminating based on a protected um, category, you are pretty much free to to use information that is legally available to you in making a decision. So while we never encourage employers to go out searching for information or go out looking for um, an employee's online activity, which is private and unique to them and almost always like, you know, likely to be lawful, mm -hmm. when it is brought to your attention and it is conduct that you clearly see, hey, if this was an email or if this was you know, something stated at work, this would get someone terminated or disciplined, then you need to think about it in that same perspective. And sometimes it's going to make sense to, you know, treat it in a progressive discipline manner. Mm -hmm. But if you have a manager making a hateful comment against a particular category of employees, it's really going to be, you know, a difficult situation for you to be in as an employer if you don't discipline that manager or ensure you're protecting employees reporting to that individual. 
Sure. Um, so there might be recourse then. There might be recourse for an employer just depending on the content. So that that probably is an area that you should seek some some counseling guidance. Exactly. So I want to pivot a little bit as another thing that came out of the Black Lives Matter movement is an increased focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI initiatives in the workplace. Can you explain the premise of DEI? Yes. So uh, by DEI, we're referring to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we're talking about the fact that all three are different uh, pillars that matter in improving a workplace culture. So certainly a lot of employers have always had some degree of focus on diversity and increasing retention numbers and diversifying their workforce. Not always have employers really focus on the equity aspect, right? Are we paying employees equally under the law and also in a way that is fair to their respective experience and contributions at work? Um, and then inclusion, you know, are our employees of color and of different backgrounds being brought into decision-making roles are their opinions actually being weighed and considered in company policy mm. and activity? So it's really a more complex look at the traditional diversity uh, focus. And I think it is one of the most exciting things to come out of all the social upheaval is this real interest um, in companies of all different sizes and having a reckoning with their, uh, their past, their hiring practices, uh, the leadership makeup and whether it's reflective of the general population or certainly of the communities in which they operate and serve. Uh, and that's really led to a lot more uh, vocal and public commitment from different employers of what they want to see happen with their demographics and with their leadership. And I think that's encouraging um, in a lot of ways. And I think absolutely you know, we would like to see of course, employers continue to adhere to their public commitments. Um, I always tell my clients, if you're not willing to put the work behind it, making the statement can often just land you in hot water later um, when mm -hmm. you're acknowledging to the public that you have work to do and that you're going to do X, Y, Z uh, to remedy these issues and then you don't back it up with conduct, that can also you know, be used and has been used as evidence um, of racial animus. Yeah, and there are so many more companies now who are going beyond the check-the-box DEI training, right, that might be uh, mandatory training that they've had in their workplaces to actually start doing more and to start thinking about it at a deeper level. So for founders who this is a value for and want to incorporate DEI initiatives into their workplace culture, where best to start? So, you know, this is really an area that's going to be unique to each company depending on their history, their goals, and their size. But I think an internal audit, an assessment of where they're at, is going to be the most important first step, right? Determining do we have a problem with a particular issue? Have we been doing something about it? And has it been effective or not? If it has not been effective, what can we do differently to try to you know, address those issues? And sometimes that is a full audit that is rolled out to its entire workforce, where you're seeking input on different, you know, uh, initiatives that the co that the company may have taken to see if it's working, how it's resonating with your workforce. It could be uh, something where you hire a consultant to come in and run this analysis, or perhaps look at your data and your year-over-year -year retention to identify problem areas. Uh, but certainly, dedicating that internal assessment as your first step, in my opinion, is the best way to proceed 
And then you want to really focus on getting buy-in from the top uh, and buy-in across the board uh, for your leadership. Because obviously anything that you do, if you haven't made it sufficiently um, clear to your leadership of why you're doing it and where you're hoping to go, then you're going to have a lot more you know, intervention, a lot more issues along the way. But I think once you've made a message very clear to your leadership and you have everyone behind it, then any activity that you determine um, based on such an analysis is going to be more easily embraced. You know, you want to uh, implement whatever that initiative is. And for some companies that has been, you know, listening sessions with workers of different backgrounds where, you know, folks are getting an opportunity to have the floor and to talk about their experiences both at work and elsewhere. Uh, it could look like a hire of a chief officer that's going to be dedicated solely to DE&I work. Um, it could mm -hmm. be, as I said, engaging a professional to do training on implicit bias and on other issues um, that are affecting your workforce. So whatever that looks like, having you know a plan on how you're going to roll it out and implement it so that it lands properly is going to be key. And then, of course, determining how to measure your success. You know, are you going to look at hiring metrics, um, your over-year retention? Are you looking at leadership, a certain number of uh, leaders that you're looking at? Are you going to consider a certain number of individuals that are diverse for every open position? You know, it can take a lot of different, um, a lot of different formats for a company, but as long as you know what you're looking to do, you've identified what success is going to look like for you right, what your accounting is going to look like, how you're going right. to ensure your team is actually meeting expectations. That's what you're going to want to, you know, be focused on because so many companies do the beginning work of assessing and the middle work of announcing some change or initiative, but not enough to tracking and verifying that what they want to do and what they're putting their good faith efforts behind is actually working for their workforce. Thank you, Greg. There was so much great information in that. I just want to break some of it down a little bit further. So you mentioned recruiting and retention, which I think is a key element in these DEI initiatives and in terms of integrating into your culture a, a, a way to increase your diversity at all different levels of the organization. So I've had clients ask me about a quota and saying, well, we need to fill X number of positions with somehow diverse candidates, racially diverse, socioeconomically diverse, whatever it is. And how does that factor into the EEO laws? Because people are trying to do a good thing, right? But there are laws that also apply to private companies. Absolutely. And, and if, if an employer wants to have an affirmative action plan, you know, that's a very particular process. That is something that they should certainly investigate and look into and then adhere to. But in terms of independent kind of quote unquote self-help, uh, the focus on a quota is really not ideal. Uh, you want to make sure you're looking at, you know, generally diversifying, prioritizing diversity, let me say that again. You want to make sure you're looking at generally diversifying, prioritizing uh, the most qualified candidate and ensuring a diverse slate at every level. And you know, making sure your interviewers are diverse, that the people going out into their network to locate diverse candidates themselves are diverse or at least well qualified to bring you the best and the brightest of all different backgrounds. 
that should be your focus because there is such a thing as reverse discrimination. And you certainly cannot uh, discriminate against people because of their belonging to majority groups. Uh, but you, you can select the most qualified candidate and you can make diversity and inclusion considerations a key component of who is the most qualified, right? So a candidate that has demonstrated commitment and history supporting a diverse and inclusive workplace should be given some additional weight than a candidate who has no track record of being engaged in that space. Uh, a candidate right. that has training that is missing, right? Background skill set that is missing from your workforce. That is someone, you know, perhaps someone with a degree um, involving, uh, you know, communications, corporate communications to diverse audiences. That person may be more qualified than someone that doesn't have uh, such detailed and tailored experience given whatever you're looking to do. You know, if you're a media company, there could be relevance to someone's experience working with diverse populations that you're mm -hmm. going to weigh in and built into your process. So you can do what you want to do, which is prioritize hiring diverse candidates, but do it in a way that does not run afoul of existing Title VII and other laws. And it is why we recommend, you know, getting engaged with outside counsel or another expert that can help you kind of navigate that um, tightrope so that you're always in compliance, but still moving forward and advancing um, all of your efforts. That's that's really helpful. Thank you. And what about on the retention and pay equity side? How do you ensure that people are being treated fairly? I know I hear prior compensation as a justification for a lower salary sometimes, which affects women adversely as well as certain diverse populations. Absolutely. That's, that's a great point. And it's almost low-hanging fruit. Uh, so many states have already made it uh, unlawful to inquire about prior compensation data until there is um, an actual offer in hand of employment, a conditional offer of employment. Uh, it is likewise, you know, important to think about whether you want to have such a wide range of compensation for a new hire role or for a promotion into a position. If you have done the work um, of doing a compensation analysis and of organizing or having some kind of uh, range associated with each position, you mm -hmm. won't have outliers that are getting compensated significantly above or below merely because of how good they are at advocating for themselves or how good um, you know they looked to someone else or how, uh, how much they reminded someone of themselves uh, or whatever internal advocacy methods they might have developed. So if you really focus on what does the job description say? What do they actually need? Do they need a master's degree? Do they need a PhD? Do they need 20 years or is 10 years enough? Do they need five years? You know, is it necessary to have um, a particular type of experience or not? Like make sure your job description isn't in and of itself excluding so many candidates because it is requiring uh, such advanced and senior skills that data has shown it's going to end up excluding your younger, uh, more likely to be college educated um, individuals, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about that, did you make your analysis clear? Did you really give reasoning and thought as to the range of compensation? Then when you're bringing on someone and you're hiring them, you don't ask about their last compensation 
you can ask about their goals around the vision goals if it's something that becomes necessary and if it's allowed in your state. But it always makes sense to say, here's the range of compensation for this position and you know, have an answer as to why this individual falls in the low end, high end, or middle range so that you're keeping yourself honest and keeping your recruiters and your team honest as to why they're assessing someone as worthy of higher or lower compensation. Sure. So any other thoughts or other questions that I haven't asked that I should or topics? Well, one thing I'll say is a lot of clients want to rush to do um, a compensation analysis or pay equity analysis, but they're not really prepared to do anything about it. And I think, mm. you know, that is a real critical, in my opinion, mistake to misstep because going out there and gathering the data, having knowledge and becoming aware of serious problems and then not having any action um, is a nightmare from a litigation standpoint, from a class action standpoint. If you ever are in a position where you have to disclose non-privileged uh, pay audit information that you never took any action about. So again, if you're going to go that route and you are you know, interested in seeking out more information about how your compensation is doing and how well or poorly um, it reflects you know, your focus on diversity and inclusion, then you need to be prepared to back it up with some ameliorative action. Um, so that you can show you understood the issue and you've developed practices and policies to address it. So you mentioned privilege. So is there a way to perform the pay equity analysis with counsel so that it's all privilege and you wouldn't have to disclose it in future litigation? Absolutely. Um, you know, we have a lot of experience running pay equity audits uh, as counsel, as outside counsel. And I think it is the best way to proceed so that you can have you know, a privileged, uh, protected analysis that allows you to determine what you need to do differently without worrying about you know, what it means if you discover something unpleasant or something that surprises you. And I think your outside counsel will also be able to help you navigate what is an appropriate reaction. Um, again, your outside counsel will have you navigate what is an appropriate result, what is uh, the best way to uh, fix or otherwise address the issue that you might discover, and also how to best communicate it internally up the chain in a manner that protects you and that you know will get the most buy-in. Thank you so much, Gray, for joining me on this episode of Legally Empowered. DEI in the workplace is such an important issue to be discussing right now, and I'm so grateful that you were able to share your unique perspective with us and provide our listeners with the pointed advice on how they can be advocates for DEI in their own way and in their own workplaces. 